Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rhema.org.au forward slash media. For, um, for many reasons. Um, for me, the biggest reason is straight off the bat, I, th- I think about salvation and I think what could be a more important topic um, than the topic of salvation as a whole. You know, we say that we're saved, you know. Mm. Um, we evangelize so that other people can be saved. Um, we talk about salvation a lot. So it would be really good, I think, for us as Christians to have a good grip on what salvation is and um, how one gets saved. Um, questions like, um, what do I need to do to be saved? Um, who does the saving? Mm. Um, why do we need to be saved? Um, what are we being saved from? Um, when do we get saved? And uh, what happens to people who um, aren't saved? So those are all related questions as well when you look at salvation. And you can see why it's a big topic. You could really talk and talk and talk a lot on this. So um, I'm going to do my best to just be real short and sweet tonight. So hopefully, Andy, you can help me out with that. But um, that's pretty much the, the definition of soteriology. It is the doctrine of salvation and um, why it's so important is because we're talking about salvation here. It is, it is really the heart of the Christian um, message for, for humans, from our point of view, um, our salvation. Mm. So, um, and it is really important too, um, Andy, is, is it, it also incorporates other biblical doctrines. So when you look at soteriology, it will also affect your view of God. So your doctrine of God gets affected by um, how you view salvation. Yeah. Um, your doctrine of man will be affected by that. Um, how you look at yourself in light of God, how you look at other people in light of God, how God sees other people. And ultimately, the biggest one for me is um, what is God like? So when we talk about salvation, I'm always thinking, how does this affect God? What's God's nature like? What's his character like? Um, Am I trying to make God in my own image here, or am I trying to see God the way that He's revealed Himself in Christ, in Scripture? Um, so that's always what I, I want to do, and what I think we as Christians want to do as well. Um, so yeah. there's a few things there. No, that's huge. I, I think, um, like personally in my own life, there've been um, you know you you run into different Christians here and there, and all of a sudden someone throws you a curveball because they take a different standpoint on. On the issue of salvation, perhaps, and I remember being um, there were two instances in in my life where uh, I'm having a conversation with a Christian, or you know, they're a teacher teaching me something, and all of a sudden, like, I'm like, whoa, that's different to what I've been raised to believe, or that's that's different to how my circle, uh, my denomination, my church um, sees things. I'll I'll, I'll just share this. Like once um, uh, in grade one, um, we had a religious instruction teacher come in and she had this understanding it was a, it was quite a like a legalistic if you'd say like very works based um, understanding of scripture and I think a lot of um, the traditional uh, islands kind of denominations um, of Christianity um, they kind of take this this standpoint of works being like such a crucial part to how being how we're saved how we're justified and made right in the sight of God and um, I, I remember always having like, oh, wow, that's, that's a different standpoint. Um, another one was uh, 
I had a, one of my siblings was going through university and all of a sudden um, this, this term called the elect gets brought up and how God's um, predestined some for salvation and elected them for, uh, them for salvation. And I was like, whoa, where do I actually stand on this? Like, uh, mm. it was the first time I was introduced to there being different perspectives. Yeah. Um, why don't you take us through some of those different perspectives? What are some of those different views in soteriology? Yeah, so soteriology widely, like broadly speaking, you know, if you look at Christian theism or Christianity as a whole, all throughout church history, there are many different views on soteriology, um, especially when you're looking at like Catholicism mm -hmm. and you're looking at Protestantism, you're looking through um, Eastern Orthodox views, There's, it's very broad. Um, for our purposes, most people in the room are going to be Protestants, I'm pretty sure. Raise your hand if you're a Catholic here, hand if you're an Orthodox, hand if you don't know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, because we're talking to Protestants, we're going to look at the Protestant understanding of salvation tonight. So, amongst all the views that you could talk about, we're just going to keep it pretty simple, uh, and we're going to look at what you mentioned. You brought up election, um, uh, basically pertaining to a Calvinistic understanding. So, we're going to look at basically the typical Calvinism, Arminianism um, conversation, um, dispute, whatever word you want to put on that. So we're going to look at that, and um, we're just going to go over it briefly. Uh, I'm sure many of us here are aware of that. Do I have any Calvinists in the room? Curious. Do I have any Arminians in the room? Do we have any people that are like, just hurry up and get to it, because I have no idea? <laughs> All right. That's good. So um, this is pretty much the, the two dominant views that took place after uh, the Reformation, um, so this, this in, her, in history, we're going to be looking at sort of post-Reformation soteriology um, and get right into it, yeah. So it's going to be good. You mentioned um, Reformation. Is that, uh, what, what exactly is that in church history? So the Reformation in a nutshell is, um, I'll do like the two-minute elevator speech version of it. Um, the, the Reformation essentially was an event that took place in church history around the 16th century. Um, there were a lot of people that thought that the Catholic Church were abusing and um, misusing their authority and their office um, as leaders in the church and whatnot. And so um, you might have heard of Martin Luther. Um, he was one of the big proponents of this. Um, and he came out and basically said, you know, we completely disagree with the way that church is being run right now, the doctrines and, and the theology of the church. Um, he thought that we had strayed a long way away from how Jesus had taught things, how the earliest disciples and apostles had taught things. Um, and so he was saying, we need to reform and we need to essentially uh, go back to the way that things originally were. We've gone off track um, and things are now wrong. And so that was, from his point of view, he was saying, we need to fix stuff. We need to, re to reform this. Um, obviously, the Catholics disagreed. Catholics um, were obviously saying, no, we have the right view. So there was this debate and dispute. Um, so the Reformation essentially was this dispute amongst um, Christians uh, that basically drove a wedge between what we know as Catholicism and Protestantism today. And so... Um, I think worldwide there it's something about over a billion in each 
camp. So there's about a billion or more Protestants and there's about a billion or more um, Catholics worldwide. So um, pretty big wedge that still remains to um, this day and still a hot topic, that one. So um, the Calvinist and the Arminian both held hands and and agreed um, in the Reformation in terms of opposing um, Rome and opposing Catholicism on their views of some of the views, for example, justification was a big one. So it was to do with um, we're made righteous or we're justified before God, um, not just because of what Christ has done, but also our works are kind of meritorious and our justification increases over time as we're good people. So we, we get to stand right before God um, because not only of what Christ has done, but also because of the good works that we do. So that was kind of how the Protestants understood that. And they, they were like, you know, this is, this is attacking the cross in a sense. This is stripping some of the value and the meaning of the cross by saying that that sacrifice was not enough, that we need to do these meritorious good efforts and deeds to further justify ourselves before God. Um, and so you can see why this was such a touchy topic. The heart of the gospel um, was at stake here. Mm. And so the big debate occurred over the topic and the definition of justification. Um, is it by faith alone or is it faith plus works? Um, that was one of the major ones. There was a lot of other ones, but that was a big one. So the Arminian and the Calvinist both agreed on that, that it was by faith alone um, you know, so there's a lot there, but yeah. um, where they then split up was how that works in the life of a believer, um, how faith works in the life of a believer, and we'll get into that. So, you mentioned um, when we started about um, you know your understanding of soteriology about the doctrine of salvation affects how you see God, how you understand Him, and instantly, like what you were mentioning, the, the Catholic perspective. Um, of uh, works, you kind of see God as like this this marks uh, someone that's there to mark performance. But then, with the Reformation, you see a God that's reaching out mm. and extending salvation to mankind. Mm. Um, and so, it's almost like you have this big stream, and then all of a sudden, there's a split off. Mm. And then you mentioned two camps, so it's like it, it after this split, it comes to another split. You mentioned Calvinism yeah. and, Arminia, and Arminianism. That's Not it. to be confused with any Armenians we have in the... Armenians, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, tell us a bit more about that. Let's start with Calvinism. What, what, did, uh, what is that? So Calvinism essentially is um, it's a view that was brought up um, based on a guy named John Calvin um, in the 16th century as well. Um, he basically... Um, a lot of his ideas weren't original. He brought up a lot of things that St. Augustine would bring up, yeah, that he brought up in early church history, fifth uh, century. Um, and basically he was saying that most of what he had to say on the topic of salvation has already been penned by Augustine. So it wasn't anything particularly new, but he elaborated and he went to the logical conclusions of things that um, Augustine had left open in some areas. Um, so Calvin was very big on what's known as um, predestination and in that sense of the word, the way that that's defined um, for the Calvinist is that um, God ultimately has elected or predestined um, certain individuals 
some people um, to be saved before they've done anything good or bad, uh, before creation actually. So God in his um, all-wise counsel, in his will, he decided to save a certain group of people. And for the other people who aren't saved or, or aren't elect, um, that's a topic that's up for dispute amongst Calvinists, but um, some say that he also just chose not to save other people. And again, it's not based on anything right or wrong that they've done. Um, and some say he just withheld decision altogether on that. Um, but essentially, that was one of the main things that comes up um, is, is on this topic of... Uh, often it's brought up about... You hear about it, free will versus predestination. That's often the way that you, you hear about it. You know, do you have free will or is predestination true? You know, you can't have both. Um, so that was pretty much one of the main sort of things that come up um, with Calvinism. Um, but it's really been popularised and made famous by the acronym TULIP. So um, you might have heard of someone being a five-point Calvinist. That would be somebody who holds to the five points of TULIP. So that would be um, T for total depravity, um, U for unconditional election, that would be L for limited atonement. Um, that would be I for irresistible grace. And P for perseverance of the saints. So that was that became the five-point acronym, TULIP, um, that pretty much summarized the soteriology and the salvation doctrines of grace or salvational, um, salvific doctrines um, for the Calvinist. Mm. Um, so that's where Calvinism often is represented today. Obviously... There are different kinds of Calvinisms, um, different Calvinists that hold to different versions. So not every Calvinist will be a five-pointer, just to make things a little bit more interesting. But when you're talking about Calvinism, often that's the go-to, is the, is the tulip five-point. So, um, yeah, you mentioned um, total depravity. Um, my wife will accuse me of total depravity when I <laughs> continuously leave my socks Outside of the laundry the basket, on yeah. the floor. To, uh, break that down for us. What, what, are, what are these in-depth uh, total depravity? Okay, so total depravity, basically, um, for the Calvinist, again, tulip, T, total depravity, that just means that man is spiritually dead. That man, because of the fall, man is no longer in relationship with God, so much so that he is totally and completely dead, that um, he cannot respond positively to God um, because he is spiritually blind, um, he is spiritually dead and so in order for man to believe in God it must take um, another work and it has to be God that does the work not man that does the external work. From him. Something external from man. So because man is spiritually dead he cannot reach out to God he cannot seek God um, it must be God that regenerates the heart of man first, effectual grace would be uh, the means by which God regenerates the, the fallen man, um, essentially turns his heart from stone to flesh um, and regenerates him, makes him alive um, so that man can have faith and believe and be saved, um, something like that. That's, mm. that's kind of where it goes. So um, total depravity essentially is the, is the start because it, it pretty much says... Um, man cannot respond positively to God. Um, he cannot choose God. 
unless God makes that choice for man because man's completely dead. Not just totally um, depraved in the sense of totally sinful. We could always be more sinful. Um, We could always do something more terrible um, in the sense that there's no capacity left in man to reach out to God to do good, spiritual good. Um, That Whatever we do, it's always going to be bad because of our nature. So it sounds pretty heavy, sounds pretty um, gloomy, uh, but there are obviously scripture verses that they would go into. And yeah, I was, yeah. I was just about to ask, like, um, are there scriptural basis for a Calvinist to arrive at that conclusion where our choice or our free will in regards to being saved is there? Uh, where, where can we see that they get that understanding from? So there's a couple here. I've got a few. So um, John 6, 44 is, is one of the go-tos. Um, this is where Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So breaking that down a little bit, he's saying no one, no human can come to me in and of themselves. He cannot reach out. He cannot pursue holiness. He cannot pursue spiritual good. Um, It takes God, his drawing in a man to bring him to life before he can pursue God. So it's a very um, different way of looking at it than what many people are used to um, from my experience. Um, that God must first quicken and awaken a man before he can believe, you know. So they would use that. John six forty four. you know, Jesus has said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him first. Um, so the drawing and then they can come. And that would be one of their proof texts. Another one is John six sixty five. Um, it says that, um, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So again, there's this like condition before you can believe, you have to be granted or granted that by the Father first. So it's almost like, again, because of our depravity, we're not in a position to be able to reach out to God. He must first grant that and draw to us first. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot. There's there's many verses that can come up, but there's a couple. So it it seems like yeah. between the Arminian Arminianist and the Calvinist, they both have a sense of God makes the first move. Except the Calvinist would say God makes the like the total first move. Mm. But the Armenians would say God makes the move and, and, and has given us free will to choose him back. So uh, I guess, would you yeah. say that's, that's the... Yeah, so the, the, the Armenian, um, we can get into Armenianism as well a little bit too, but that is, that's right. The Armenian would say, um, we, we also agree with total depravity, funnily enough. We, the Armenian would say, we agree. Um, we can't save ourselves. We, we can't save ourselves. Um, we need God's initial work. We need his initiation and we need his calling out and his... Uh, reaching out yeah. first, his drawing or um, his wooing or um, his grace, in a sense, mm-hmm. before man could even do anything good um, because of our depravity. Mm-hmm. We're totally depraved. The Arminian, however, would differ with the Calvinist on this by saying, we just don't agree that we're totally unable mm-hmm. to respond. Um, they would say we're totally spiritually dead totally depraved um however within that we still have the capacity and the ability 
if God was to reach out to us with his grace, we can respond to that. Um, As free will agents. By having still some um, free will. Like, it would be, often uh, Armenians would say, this is because in the fall we did not lose that faculty of freedom or the ability to make meaningful choices. Um, That was there. It, it was actually part of the image of God. So that would be, most Armenians would say, that, that wasn't lost in the fall. Yeah. So we still can respond to God um, if you're following. We can still f- respond to God even though we're totally depraved. It just means that we first need God to reach us. Um, that would be what most Armenians would say. Again, there, there are different kinds of Armenians too that would slightly put a different you know, spin on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's essentially the main difference. Total depravity is not really up for debate. Um, it's more the total inability part of depravity that the Calvinist is um, sees, mm-hmm. I think. So that would be where the main difference is. Calvinist is saying man cannot respond positively to God. Um, and the Arminian is saying um, if God reaches out to man, man has the option because God's initiated mm-hmm. and he's... he's use that grace to give him the option to, um, to do something spiritually good, to believe. So, yeah, it's a debate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's a, it's a really touchy thing because, I mean, I've got some great friends of mine who are Calvinists and, um, you know, it's a, it's a position that good Christian men can, and women obviously can, can believe. Um, and it's uh, a lot of people come to this position by trying to be faithful to the text, seeing texts like these and going, um, you know, I can see why some people mm. definitely see that Take as an option yeah. um, and why there are many Calvinists today um, because they, they see things like this in Scripture and they, they interpret it as such. So that's kind of a little spin on total depravity. There's, there's a lot more to say, but that's kind of as much as I think as we could mm-hmm. probably... And the U of Tulip is we have is... Unconditional election. Break, break that down. First. Unconditional election is the next one. So T for tulip and then the U. Unconditional election. Um, this essentially is just saying that election is something that God has done before creation. That God has elected certain people to be saved, individuals to be saved, um, irrespective of everything, anything that they've done, whether good, evil, um, belief, unbelief, um, regardless of all of that. So it's unconditional. Election is not conditioned upon man's faith or lack of faith or good works or evil. It's completely beside what mankind does. So unconditional election is basically God's sovereign will in his decree. He chooses who he saves um, based on no conditions um, other than his own good and perfect will. So that would be the main view. So um, there's obviously scripture verses for that. I can go into a couple. Acts 13.48 is a big one. So um, it says that, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, uh, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So that last little part there is the main thing that um, they bring up. They say, um, 
as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the order is not reversed, such as everyone who believed were then appointed to eternal life. It was saying everyone who was appointed to eternal life then believed. So um, they look at that and go, well, okay, clearly you can see that they've been appointed already to eternal life. They've been elected already and to eternal life. And so as time progresses, then they believe. So their belief is just a, a following out of the unconditional election. So they see that verse. Romans 9, 11 to 13 is a pretty much probably the, the biggest one that comes up. Um, it says that though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there's a lot there. Um, Two main things. One is that um, God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, good or bad. So his purpose of election would continue. And then he goes on to say that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's a lot of ink that's been spilt over that last passage there in Romans 9. Um, 13, you know, what does it mean for God to say, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau, um, even regardless of what they've done, you know? Um, so you can see why that looks like a kind of unconditional election, you know, um, being loved in that sense and being elected regardless of what you've done. Um, you can see why looking at that from the outset, you'd go, oh, there it is, there's election, there's unconditional election, um, so, and Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 is the last one that comes up, and I think we'll probably hit that. Um, it says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So just breaking that down there, um, you can see why you can walk away from that passage going, um, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you know, um, we can clearly see that this wasn't a choice that was made during our life. This was a choice that God had made already. He has um, elected and he has predestined before um, us in Christ. So you can see that those verses are kind of the go-tos mm-hmm. um, for that topic, yeah. I know in in my experience with um, discussing and sharing with different Calvinists, it's the isolated scriptures that are the ones that uh, throw the curveball. Because I feel like um, like we all have a sense of what the heart of the message is. Like choose God always places like at least for me like someone who's feels like this is real simple. Like 
that God's always set before us life and death and he gives us a choice on what we're to action or, um, you know, but it's, it's these isolated ones that can sometimes hit you for six. So I guess it, it's nice getting to, to dive in and see how a Calvinist can come to that through, you know, someone that really honors the word of God and someone that really, you know, loves God and, um, you know, that highly esteems God's salvation. Like they, they, they don't hold it at a, at a second tier or, That's um, right. you know, any more than someone like myself yeah. would, um, you know, value our salvation. Yet they've come to a different point on this. What about um, limited atonement um, in terms of, you know, Christ's death? And what, what, what would a Calvinist arrive at through, um, on, on, that, on this subtopic um, in Tulip? Yeah, so if you're following Tulip, we've got the T, the U, and the L is next. That's limited atonement. And essentially, limited atonement is the view that um, God had um, designed that the atonement, which was basically, um, that's a big topic, but the the atonement essentially was um, Christ's work that basically um, paid for our sins on the cross um, and reconciles us and justifies us before the Father. The atoning work of Christ um, that was only given to the elect. So following that thread, people are totally depraved. Certain people are, to- are completely unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world. Christ only died for those people. He didn't die for every human in the world. He only died for um, all kinds of people, you know. Um, there would be Jews, Gentiles, um, kings, um, you name it, any kind of person. Christ died for all of them, but Christ did not die for um, every human. He only died for um, his elect or his sheep often is, is brought up. So, um, yeah, that one I find most people get a bit like, ooh, feel like shiver go through your spine. Yeah. <laughs> and it does sound a little bit funny. Um, that doctrine has been sort of the title of it has been revised over the years. Um, particular redemption is one of the ways it's been redefined as because I think the, the the connotation that comes with limited atonement makes it sound like we're pulling back and we're de-glorifying something in the atonement. Um, it's a lesser um, lesser in its limited, strength than what it yeah. can right. You know, so so for that reason, you can see why people just sort of cringe at it. They're like, "Ooh, limited atonement." I mean, I mean, it sounds like we're sort of shredding the importance or something that Christ has done. Um, but again, the scripture verses so th- that they obviously go to, um, uh, John 10, 11 is one of the ones that, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Um, the sheep were not considered to be every human. The sheep were considered to be those that followed the shepherd. Um, you know, we know that Jesus in Matthew talks about sheeps and the, the sheep and the goats. So we have different forms of um, these animals representing different people. Um, and Jesus here is saying that he lays down his life for the sheep. So again, this is one verse they go to. Um, they would say, why didn't he just say he lays down his life for everyone, every, every human or all people? Um, but he clearly says he lays down his life for the sheep. That must indicate that he hasn't died for everybody. The atonement is not 
unlimited to all people, but it is in fact limited to just his sheep, just his elect, the ones who he has um, unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world. So it's a kind of locked-in system. It's consistent so far. Um, so, I mean, many people would say, you know, he wouldn't die for those who he hasn't elected because that would be, in a, in a sense, kind of wasted blood. It's like, why would you die for somebody who's not elect, who's not going to be saved? God hasn't chosen this person to be saved. And so um, dying for that person so that they could possibly be saved would be um, kind of illogical, kind of pointless. Um, so you can see the thought behind that, yeah. Yeah, a big, a big thing that comes up um, is the sovereignty of God. And I think mm. in an attempt to um, not to sacrifice God's sovereignty, it's leaked into these areas where, oh, well, God's all-powerful, so he'll save those he already chose. You know, mm. you can see where... Um, these beliefs, they all try to support each other. And, um, yeah, what about um, the I in uh, ir irresistible grace? Irresistible grace, um, essentially the Holy Spirit is the one who um, irresistibly um, or efficaciously, or, yeah, you don't have the ability to resist this grace. So he irresistibly regenerates the heart of man so that the man can believe. So we said this a little bit earlier that... Um, First, you need to be made alive before you can put your faith in Christ. That's what the Calvinist is saying. Um, and irresistible grace is essentially the means um, by which man is saved. God does a work. Um, they call this monogism or monogistic work. It's where God alone, mono meaning one, God does the work and mankind doesn't do any of the work at all. That would be synergism for, for man to do work with God. So they would say it's monogistic, it's irresistible grace. Um, those who God has elected, those who God has chosen before the foundation of the world will at some point in their life um, be met by God's irresistible grace and that will necessarily save the person um, because they can't resist it. Um, it's just like um, once it hits them, that's it. You know, and that they'll they'll be saved. Um, it doesn't mean that they'll convert instantly. It doesn't mean that their their whole life will look like Christ instantly. There's that sanctifying process that takes time, but um, conversion will happen at some point after that. That person will be saved. Um, so that's that's what irresistible grace um, is in the jewel of the eye. Um, one of the verses that's brought up is um, John one twelve. Um, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So again, they're saying emphasis is on God. God does the choosing. Man doesn't do the choosing. Um, and that grace is obviously irresistible to that man. Um, John 6.44, we've mentioned already, but that's another one that sort of ties in. Um, no one can come to the Father unless um, the Father who sent me draws him, um, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Again, it's that drawing. Um, that word draw sometimes is argued to mean a kind of dragging, um, and, and that's used elsewhere in Scripture. The drawing is like a dragging. It's an irresistible pull. Yeah, so that's sort of what they're getting at. Um, right. I will draw him. I will drag him. It will be irresistible. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then I, I guess yeah. maybe the Arminianist would look at that verse and say, like, I can't, like, it says how no man can come unless the Father draws him. So mm. the Father draws me, and then I come. Like, the, the, see that as that's how an Arminianist views the response that's right. to salvation. So yeah, God would draw, and then you would say, you know, yeah. I respond to that, yeah. Again, same um, scripture, but different lenses uh, when it comes to it this is. important topic of soteriology. Yeah. What yeah. about, uh, lastly, the P and tulip? So perseverance, the P. Of, perseverance of the saints. What yeah. does that mean? And what's so we, we're finally there at the end of tulip. So perseverance is the last one, and um, essentially that is saying that all who are elect, all who are regenerated, who have been drawn by God's grace um, and saved they will persevere until the end. So it's not possible for somebody who is genuinely saved, um, who is a, one of the elect, to fall away. Now, you might have heard it, once saved, always saved. Someone might have heard, said that to you before. You might have heard it. Once saved, always saved. Um, many, many Calvinists would hold to that. So it would be that um, if you are genuinely saved, again, you just cannot lose it. You can't apostatize. You can't discard your faith. You can't um, sin to a certain degree where you forfeit your salvation. Um, both the Calvinist and the Arminian would agree in the sense of um, someone who's saved will persevere um, in the sense that they cannot sin to a point, like no moral sin that you do could make you lose your salvation in the sense of like I've lost my keys, sort of lost, unintentional, don't know where it went. But many, but Arminians would say, uh, you can discard it willfully, um, knowingly, fully knowing what salvation is, um, and come to a point where you say, I don't want that anymore. Um, you reject faith, complete unbelief. Um, that would be where an Arminian would differ from a Calvinist on that. They would say, you can discard that faith. And I mean, the Calvinist would say, you can't. You will persevere to the end because Christ has made a promise. Um, and some of those verses are here. 1 John 2, 25, uh, it says that, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So they would say, they've given us a promise. Christ has promised us salvation. So if we're in him, he's not going to let us down. It's a promise from God. You can rely on a promise. He will save you. Um, and we hear that scripture verse over and over again of that, the good work that he began in you, um, that he will complete that in you um, until the end, that Christ will complete that work that he started. Um, and that's a promise that he gives us. So you can see where there's a very strong sense of if Christ is in you, he has promised that he will save you. And there's nothing you can do to remove yourself from that. Well, what would they, uh, what, what would a Calvinist say for someone that was, you know, believing, um, you know, that did, you know, make, give their life to the, to the Lord, you know, and then falls away. Do, what do they say about that kind of their, that person's salvation? Simply, they would say that person was never saved to begin with. You know, um, they may have appeared to be saved. They might have been a churchgoer. They might have been someone who read the word, who prayed, you know, appeared to be holy on the outside. But inwardly, um, they were not, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. They were not regenerated. They were not truly believe, uh, a believer. Um, you know, and, and they use scripture verses um, like here, 1 John 2, 19, where it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us. But they went out from us um, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So this is a category of people that obviously um, were with them, but he's saying that they went out, they left, and so they were saying instead of, oh, they gave up their salvation or they lost it, they were saying... They weren't really from the start. It's like they weren't really, you know, one of us um, to begin with um, because a Christian who is elect will persevere because God has irresistibly graced them, drawn them. Unconditionally and they've been elected them? Because they're elect. Unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world. Um, Christ has purchased them with his blood. There has been a, a purchase that took place that has secured their salvation. And so, um, yeah, very, very sovereign. Mm. This, the word sovereignty comes up a lot. You know, um, God has sovereignly done this work. And because God is all-powerful and because God is sovereign, um, if that is defined as controlling everything, if he is sovereign in the sense of not just has the ability to control all things, um, but actually is controlling all things, then obviously logically you're left saying no one can fall from Christ. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, looking at the Calvinist, um, you know, the five pillars of Calvinism and how they've got a nice acronym for, with TULIP. Um, uh, what are, uh, in the Arminianist camp, um, we don't have... Uh, we don't have TULIP. We don't have TULIP. We don't have a nice <laughs> word that it all fits. We've got cut. PC. Um. We've got cut PC. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Um, Arminius gave us was cut PC. It's not tulip. Um, hard to compete with a big with a flower tulip, and yeah. then you've got cut PC. So that acronym, we, we don't say cut PC. We just go straight to the um, the tenets of that acronym. So that's that's Calvinism in a nutshell. Um, obviously, there's a few things there that probably could be explained. Um, and elaborated on, but that's kind of the point of it. Um, just finishing on that, one of the big emphases um, that they bring up is the glory of God. Mm. Um, all of this is for the glory of God, yeah. um, which we agree with, which yeah. which every every view will want to affirm. That's what we're, Scripture affirms. We'd all place salvation as belonging to our God, how it says in Revelations, like we just always want to acknowledge him as the saviour, as the yeah. saving God. It's just, yeah. I think you can see both the, the heart in wanting to honour God and give praise and glory for his work of salvation, which is so big, mm. so vast as we covered. There's so many points to it that mm. it touches. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of nice to understand the heart mm. behind the Calvinist. And, and Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, it's touching that subject of um, credit. Mm. It's touching the subject of... Um, who gets the glory hmm. for salvation? Is it man or is it God? Does God get the glory and, and the credit for salvation? Or does man get it? And so this is the big, this is the big thing for, for the Calvinists that I've come to understand is that um, I think it seems as though if Calvinism is not true, then somehow man is robbing God of some kind of glory or some kind of credit because man has chosen God back or man has something good in man was still there and decided to 
reach out and grab God, you know, and say, yes, like save me. Um, and so somehow that makes God less glorious. So I think that's the, that seems to be, to me, one of the bigger um, issues. Um, that's almost like the elephant in the room. It's like um, maybe not brought up a lot, but um, definitely something that I think that's, that's always in, in this conversation. It's who gets the glory for salvation? Is it, is it completely God? Um, and if man chooses, how is that not also man being the final decider as to who is saved? Um, you know, if man doesn't respond to God positively, if man just says, no, nah, I don't want to be saved, um, you know, does that give man more power over God or sovereignty over God? Yeah, does, do we rob him of sovereignty? Compromised yeah. by choice, yeah. And, 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 and the glory and the credit that's associated. So I think that's the big thing. But, um, you know, there's ways of looking at that in a different way too. So that's pretty much, I think, um, enough on Calvinism. Yeah. Um, let's... We, we mentioned cut PC, the, yeah. the, yeah. the analogy that we, you heard it here PC. first. It wasn't officially a thing, but uh, we branded it cut PC. Yeah. Uh, uh, go through the first one, conditional well, election. Yeah, so basically this, this understanding of um, soteriology from an Arminian point of view, this is something that was brought up by a guy that was named um, Jacob or Jacobus um, Arminius. And basically he lived around the same sort of time. Um, and he put these five articles out. He had believed that in agreeing with Calvin on their view on soteriology in contrast with with, um, Catholicism, he said that although we agree there, um, he said, I I believe that you've gone too far, essentially. Um, You've taken something that's true and you've gone too far. And his main concern, um, from what I gather, is that he, he was worried that God's nature or his character um, had been tainted with the doctrines of grace or with Calvinism. And he also believed that um, man's freedom and moral responsibility had been um, removed or had been annihilated um, in, in doing so. So that was his main concern. Um, and so he put together five points um, uh, to kind of respond to some of those doctrines and thinking um, thoughts that, that Calvin had. So the first one was conditional election. The second was unlimited atonement. The third one was total depravity. The fourth was prevenient grace. And the fifth was conditional preservation of the saints. Um, so all five of those are basically talking about the same five that we talked about earlier in a different sort of order, um, but they're pretty much getting at that. So um, he started off with conditional election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, d- dive into that, um, the Arminian perspective of conditional election, uh, just to refresh us. Uh. It's going to be a lot quicker going through the Arminian part because we've already touched on the Calvinistic understanding. It, it, a lot of it's just going to be kind of opposite to what we know from the, the Calvinistic understanding. So... Um, the Arminian would look at election and say, it's not unconditional, it is conditional. So they would say, um, election is in a person, it's in Christ, and they would say, um, you're not elected unconditionally um, for, for, for no condition at all. You're elected in Christ um, through faith. So the emphasis for the Arminian would say, it is faith that is the condition 
by which you are elected. Um, and so it's conditioned on that. So um, it's not unconditional, it's conditional upon faith. And then they would say, you know, how does someone get to be in Christ? They would look at that topic. How are you elected in Christ through faith? Is it before the foundation of the world or are you elected in Christ once you have faith in Christ? By your choosing in your lifetime at some point. Yeah. Mm. Are you elected in Christ or are you elected to be in Christ? So they would ask that question and say, the Calvinists must admit that you have to be elected to be in Christ um, because you don't exist before the foundation of the world, you know? So they would say, you must be elected in Christ. You must be in Christ by faith to be elected. Um, and they would say, election is to be uh, elected to be, some would say it's a corporate view. Some would say it's still individualistic in terms of election. Some would say the point of election is to... Um, a, d- a destination for people to be in or at, to be holy, to be blameless, to be righteous. Um, that's what God's predestined an elected man to be. If you are in Christ, then you will be like Christ. Those who have faith in Christ will be um, conformed to the image of his son, um, bearing the likeness of Christ, holy, blameless, righteous. So it's, it's referring not to being saved, um, as in before the foundation of the world, chosen to be saved, it's saying those who put their faith in Christ, they will be holy, blameless. And they use scripture verses like Matt, Matthew 22, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is when Jesus is um, sharing the parable of, um, or talking about the, the wedding banquet. You know, the king sends out these invitations um, to nearby, to far, highways, byways. He sends it to everyone. Um, everybody gets the invitation, but only those people who are wearing the wedding garments are allowed in. Um, and there's a picture of a man who enters not wearing the wedding garment, and so he's kicked out and, um, you know, kicked out with his weeping and gnashing of teeth into the outer darkness. Um, this is a picture of, by Jesus um, the Arminian would say this is talking about um, salvation here. Um, God has offered salvation to everyone. He sent the invitation to everyone. Um, and many are called, but only few are chosen. And the question is, why are not many chosen if many are called? The reason few are chosen is because not all put faith in Christ. Not all rock up to the wedding banquet in the appropriate wedding outfit you know um and so they would say election is not unconditional they would say it's conditioned upon being in christ through faith so it's a slight distinction i hope i haven't like gone too 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 technical on that but it is a little bit um it is a bit of a fine line uh, when you start looking at the differences um but yeah it's it's a pretty big difference looking at them so um that's probably enough for conditional election I would say. Um, yeah. Uh, what about the um, unlimited atonement side of things? Unlimited atonement, um, essentially, again, it's not saying that atonement is limited like the L in Tulip is saying. It's saying atonement is unlimited. Um, Christ has given us his atonement, atoning work to save us, um, that God has not only intended for our salvation, that he's also made that possible 
and that only those who put their faith in Christ can attain that. So they would say something like, um, it was intended for all humanity, it was extended to all humanity, and applied to those who believe. Something like that. That the cross was not efficient for all, but it was sufficient for all. So they're saying that Christ did not die to force everybody to be saved or something, or just to save um, a certain group of people. Christ represented all of mankind Mm -hmm. by being the last Adam, by being the second Adam. And so his substitutionary work on the cross represented mankind. So that's what the Armenian would argue from unlimited atonement. Christ has died for all. um, And all can come to Christ Mm -hmm. because Christ has loved all people and gave his life for all people. And there's many verses that they use clarifying and emphasizing the word all, the word world, the words whole world, and they look to all that. Um, I don't know if we have much time to dive too much further into that. Yeah. Um, I know a big one that um, sticks out to me is um, that supports that view of unlimited atonement is, you know, probably the most quoted Bible verse in, um, you know, in the world's history is John 3.16. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, so this is up to whoever that mm. wants to believe, whosoever believes in him, mm. you know, shall not perish but have everlasting life. So these are yeah. some some of the scriptures that are consistent with that unlimited atonement view. What about uh, total um, depravity? What's, what's the Arminist standpoint on this? Because it's the same, It's in by wording, it seems like the same kind of, title but uh it's it's uh, somewhat different in its explanation so for um prevenient grace the number four. Oh yeah we're looking at um the last part would be this is the fourth one in that acronym that he had um prevenient grace essentially for an Armenian would be the grace that comes to man that enables him to believe it doesn't irresistibly draw him um but the grace is resistible and basically, it's the grace that opens up the eyes and the mind of the believer. It could be through the gospel. It could be through a prophet. It could be through a dream. Um, throughout Scripture, we have varying different ways that God's grace has met people. Um, and Cornelius is one example in the New Testament um, where um, God had met the person who wasn't right saved, but um, this person had already believed in, in the Father or in God in some sense. And um, God, with his prevenient grace... Um, it prevened, it came before, and it enabled man to be, um, basically, to give that option of salvation. So the man could then do that good thing and um, positively respond. So it, that's, it's not an efficacious grace, it's not an irresistible grace, it's a prevenient grace. But nonetheless, it's a grace that's required for a, a totally depraved man to be saved. Um, scripture verses that show that it's resistible. Uh, you can find them in Luke 7, 30, um, Acts 7, 51. There's, there's a bunch of them that Matt, Matthew 23, 37. Um, mm. There's a lot there. So, Yeah. And lastly, the, the conditional preservation of the saints. Mm. Um, what, what is that? Preservation of the saints. So the Armenian would say the same thing as a Calvinist. They would say that we will uh, be preserved by God. We will persevere in our faith. Um, because of Christ's promise, because of his work in us, that the Holy Spirit has sealed us and uh, will bring us to the Father. However, um, unlike the Calvinist, we can reject our faith. 
you can discard your faith, you can apostatize, and they would look at verses like um, 1 John 2, 25, and this is the promise that he made for us, uh, made to us eternal life, agreeing with the Calvinist saying, we know that God has promised us salvation. Um, but then they would say certain other verses like Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So it's saying that once someone has tasted Christ, has um, tasted the heavenly gift, has been enlightened, these are all words that many theologians say they're, they're the synonyms for, for being saved. Um, Calvinists would dispute that. They would say it was a taste but not a real transformation. Um, but they cannot, um, once they've fallen away, they cannot be restored once they're fully discarded. Um, so it's a kind of apostasy that's permanent. Um, so that's one of the views that comes up. The Arminian would push for that to say, look, it's possible if you do fall away, if you do shipwreck your faith, mm. um, uh, yeah, it's a very real thing that someone can do. Again, you can't sin to lose it, but you could forfeit your salvation by um, in unbelief or rejecting your faith. Um, so there's a lot there. I think for time's sake, we um, probably can't go any further. I wish we had more time to, to dive into a lot more. There's many, more, many more scripture verses that are so enriching. You can see how this our our belief on this what soteriology is really does determine the aspects of God that we bruise or annihilate, you know, um, like uh, the, the things that we have to take off the table to support our views. And, and both camps have an element of that, but it, our, our aim as Christians is to come down to what's consistent with doctrine and what's consistent with the Word of God and the heart of God. We don't want to miss the heart just to facilitate some language things, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Completely. I think um, to conclude, I think it would be um, good just to say a couple things. I think in this whole discussion, it's important to realize that um, although that there are differences between um, Calvinists and Arminians, um, these differences I don't think separate Calvinists and Arminians from being brothers in Christ. I don't think this is something that's an essential doctrine of the faith. Um, I think it's very critical and important. Um, but I don't think it's something that that really needs to be um, divisive. Mm. I think that we can be um, respectful in conversations. We can love people who we have disagreements with and who we differ with. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity um, for us as Christians to have conversations with other believers who might th see things a little bit differently um, than us. Um, and so I know many Armenians who are God-fearing, wonderful Christians as well as Calvinists and so um, at the end of the day, I think it's important to remember that um, it's important how we're saved, mm. but I think at the end of the day, it's more important um, that we're saved and it's more important that God gets the glory for that salvation through Christ. Mm. And so at the end of the day, Jesus gets the glory, God wins, yeah. and we get to participate in salvation Praise that we can all agree on. And so, um, yeah, uh, did, maybe you want to... Say something or yeah, um, close or I think uh, yeah, just just in in closing, um, 
you can you can see where we where where the stream has kind of ended up. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely there are things that we all agree on and would say amen to each other um, uh, when we when we come across a Calvinist or someone else that has a differing view. And I think uh, this issue of salvation, we can all say that salvation belongs to our God. It's Him who saves us. He saved us by His grace and with His love. And I guess the thing that we want to do is if, if you have someone that you come across that has a different view, we can all still encourage someone in their faith. I guess at the end of the day, yeah. if I have a Calvinist brother, I'm still sharing scriptures with him like, hey, God, I was you know, reading the word of God this morning and this book jumped out at me. Mm. And like, I'm sure you still have those uh, yeah. conversations with your friends as well. So it's awesome to be in the family of God. And um, yeah, I love it. It's good stuff. Hope that was uh, a blessing. Um, we'll just say a quick prayer and we'll close the night with that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, that your word is truth and we can know you through your word. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine of salvation. God, we thank you for the fact of our salvation, Lord, that, that this world in its fallen nature and with death and evil that exists, Lord, that it does not have the final say, Lord, but, but you have the final say, God. And, and our hope, Lord, is that one day, um, as you promised, you will return, Jesus, um, you will return to save us. And we just have so much peace, so much joy and hope in that, God, that um, it's not in a, a theory and it's not in a fact, Lord, but our hope is in you, the person, Jesus Christ. And so we just want to know you a little bit closer. We pray, Lord, that um, whatever's shared tonight, Lord, would bless people and help us to know you a little bit closer, God. Mm-hmm. Help us to understand our salvation just a little bit closer. Uh, a little bit more, and um, we just pray at the end, God, you get all the glory, and um, we're so thankful to be your children that you love so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brainer.org.au. 